Section 21 of Essays and Reviews by Charles Hodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Responsibilities of Boards of Missions, Part 1. Footnote 1. American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions, Special Report of the Prudential Committee on the Control to be Exercised over Missionaries and Mission Churches, printed for the use of the Board at the Annual Meeting, Revised Edition, Press of T. R. Marvin. 2. Correspondence between the Cherokee and Choctaw Missions, the Rev. S. B. Treat and the Prudential Committee, Missionary Herald, October 1848. Princeton Review, January 1849. End footnote. It is a matter of notoriety that the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions have for several years been sorely harassed on account of their supposed patronage or tolerance of slavery. Those known to the country as abolitionists have felt it to be a duty to expostulate with the board from time to time for receiving money from the owners of slaves, for employing slaveholding missionaries, and for sustaining mission churches in which slaveholders were received as members. The board have thus been constrained to take action on the subject, and on several occasions have given deliverances which seemed to satisfy for the time the great body of their patrons. Still the matter has not been suffered to rest. With a view apparently of having the subject finally disposed of, the board in 1847 adopted the following resolution, viz. Quote, that the Prudential Committee be requested to present a written report at the next annual meeting on the nature and extent of the control which is to be exercised over the missionaries under the care of the board and the moral responsibility of the board for the nature of the teaching of the missionaries and for the character of the churches. In the meantime, the Prudential Committee directed the Reverend S. B. Treat, one of the secretaries, to visit the Cherokee and Choctaw missions, quote, to ascertain as fully as practicable the state and prospects of those missions and to inquire more particularly into their relations to the subject of slavery. End quote. Mr. Treat devoted seventeen weeks to this visitation. He held full conference with the missionaries, and at his request each mission addressed a letter to the committee exhibiting their views and principles in detail on the subject of slavery. Subsequently, he drew up a report to the Prudential Committee of his visit, which report, together with the letters just mentioned, and the reply made by the committee through Mr. Treat, are all published in the Missionary Herald for October 1848. The report of the Prudential Committee above mentioned was submitted to the Board at its late meeting in September last, but, quote, as the members had not time to give the subject that considerate attention which its importance demanded, the final disposition of the same was postponed, end quote. Mr. Treat's report on his mission and the correspondence to which it gave rise were read to the board and by them referred to a committee who reported that they abstained from expressing any opinion either on the letters of the missions or on that of Mr. Treat in reply, because they constitute a part of an unfinished correspondence and because no final action could, with propriety, be had at that time. It was therefore resolved that, quote, the whole subject should be left for the present, where it now is in the hands of the Prudential Committee. End quote. Neither of these important documents, therefore, has yet received the sanction of the Board. In the meantime, they are published in various forms for information and discussion. There are several reasons which determine us to call the attention of our readers to these documents. In the first place, 
The principles contained in the report of the Prudential Committee on the Control of Missionaries are of great importance, affecting the whole nature and organization of the Church. In the next place, those principles, and the whole subject, have as direct a bearing on the missionary operations of our Church as upon those of the American Board. Thirdly, it is to be presumed that the very design of the extensive publication of these letters is to elicit friendly discussion. And finally, the first and most stringent application of the principles of Mr. Treat's letter is to ministers and churches of one of our own presbyteries. The questions embraced in the report are discussed with singular skill and wisdom. In most points we are happy in agreeing with its excellent authors. From some of their positions we are forced to dissent, and as far as Mr. Treat's letter is concerned, dissent must assume the form of a solemn protest, which, in that particular case, every Presbyterian is entitled to enter. The first class of subjects discussed in this report relate to the general principles of ecclesiastical polity. It is specially interesting to find that principles which retired men have gathered after much study from the scriptures are those which practical men are led to adopt from stress of circumstances. The providence of God is forcing on the church views of its nature and polity very different from those which theorists have in many instances entertained. It is well known, for example, that it was the common doctrine of all denominations that ordinations sine titolo are unscriptural, that the office of an evangelist was confined to the early age of the church, that those thus designated in the New Testament were the vicari of the apostles, vested with extraordinary powers for a special purpose and a limited time. To congregationalists, no less than to prelatists, a bishop without charge was as much a solecism as a husband without a wife. A call from the people in some form was regarded as an essential part of a call to the ministry. Even Presbyterians, though their principles involved no such conclusion, were led by their circumstances to entertain a like disapprobation of such ordinations. They were an inconvenience. The whole land was possessed. No more ministers than parishes were needed, and therefore it was thought wrong to create them. It is curious to see how all those parties have been driven by the course of events from their theory on this subject. Rome, petrified in one rigid form, cannot change, and therefore perpetuates the absurdity of ordaining men to extinct or imaginary dioceses. Hence we hear of the bishop of Heliopolis, or Ecbatana, or Hierapolis, even here in America. The independents, when brought into contact with the heathen, were for a long time in a strait what to do. They felt that it was a crying sin to allow their fellow men to perish in ignorance of the gospel. Christ, however, had provided, according to their system, no means of sending the gospel beyond the limits of organized churches. The office of evangelists was obsolete. Nothing, therefore, was to be done but to allow the heathen to perish, or to endeavor to plant churches so near them that they could individually be brought under Christian influence. Puritan piety soon burnt off these tow-bonds of a narrow system. The absurdity that a church, commissioned and required to preach the gospel to every creature, could not lawfully have any preachers except among those already Christians was soon discarded. Almost every accessible portion of the heathen world has been visited and blessed by ministers ordained in violation of the fundamental principles of original congregationalism. Nay, the old doctrine seems to be well-nigh forgot. 
This report says with as much confidence as though there was not a Congregationalist alive, quote, the denial that a missionary is an office-bearer until a Christian church has invited him to take the oversight of it in the Lord, is made in utter forgetfulness, as it would seem, of the commission by which a preaching ministry was originally instituted. The primary and preeminent design of that commission was to create the missionary office and to perpetuate it until the gospel should have been preached to every creature. End quote, page 6. Ministers in the order of nature and of time are before churches. The missionary work has thus wrought a complete emancipation of our congregational brethren from a portion at least of their swaddling clothes. The Presbyterians who came to the Middle States were scarcely less strict in their notions on this subject than the independence of New England. They had larger ideas of the church and a higher view of the ministry, but they still thought that a theory elaborated in a thickly settled country could be transferred bodily to this new world, because Scottish law and English parliaments forbade ordinations sine titolo. They thought they must be wrong in themselves, except at least under very peculiar circumstances. But when they found themselves in a country where, instead of every square foot of land belonging by law to some parish, hundreds of square miles contained only here and there a Christian family, they were forced to have more ministers than organized churches. Still, they could not entirely shake off the prejudices of education, and therefore, as our early records show, the presbyteries were constantly coming with the humble request to the synod for permission to ordain A, B, or C, D, sine titolo. This doctrine is, however, as thoroughly obsolete as the dress of our forefathers. As a matter of fact, the churches do not believe it, and they do not practice upon it. They have outgrown it transplanted into a larger sphere and awakened to a sense of her original vocation to preach the gospel to every creature, the church feels that she has need of men to gather churches as well as to supply them, of men to exercise on all occasions and to every willing people, and not to one congregation only, the gifts of a didascolos. She has turned from the laws of European nations, made to protect bishops and rectors in the undisturbed possession of their livings, to the New Testament. There she has found no such trammels as to the exercise of her right to ordain, and somewhat to her surprise, perhaps, has discovered that every minister mentioned in the scripture was ordained sine titolo. In other words, that there is among all preachers named in the New Testament scarcely one who was pastor of a particular congregation. The church breathes rather more freely here than she did in the crowded countries of the old world. It will be labour thrown away to attempt to bring her again into bondage. This is one good service done the church by the missionary work, foreign and domestic. A second benefit to be expected from the same source is the gradual banishment of high churchism and the consequent promotion of Catholic unity. By high churchism we mean the disposition to attribute undue importance to the external organisation of the church, the desire to make everything relating thereto a matter of divine right, and to insist that no society, however orthodox and pure, can be a church unless organized in one particular form. This disposition has deep root in human nature. The external and visible is ever too apt to overshadow the spiritual. It is therefore not only in Romanists and Prelatists, but even in Presbyterians and Independents, that we see manifestations of this spirit. Things are made obligatory which God has left indifferent. Points are regarded as essential which are either unimportant or injurious. This spirit perverts the very nature of religion. It subjects the conscience to human authority. 
It alienates those who ought to be united, and is the cause of almost all the schism which afflicts, disgraces, and impedes the church. We, as Presbyterians, of course, believe that the essential principles of our system are laid down in Scripture, that there is no office, jure divino, superior to that of presbyters, that the people have a right by their representatives to take part in the government of the church, and that the whole church is one, and hence a part is responsible to a larger portion or to the whole. But we neither believe that any one mode of organization is essential to the being of the church, nor that the details of any system of church polity are laid down in scripture as universally obligatory. The idea that the church has no discretion in such matters, no liberty to adapt herself to her varying circumstances, is derived in no small measure from pressing unduly the analogy between the old dispensation and the new. Because everything was prescribed to the Hebrew church, it is inferred that there must be an express divine warrant for every arrangement adopted in the Christian church. Thus also it argued that because there was a priesthood then, there must be a priesthood now. Because the church and state were united then, they must be united now. The old economy was a visible theocracy, and therefore the new dispensation must be the same. Strange to say, this was the great argument and the great mistake, alike of papists and puritans, of the persecuting Dominicans and of the intolerant covenanters. There is nothing to favour this doctrine. The old dispensation was designed for one people, for one very limited country, for a specific object, and for a limited time. Most of its institutions also were typical, and therefore of necessity fixed. The institutions of the Christian Church are not prophetic, neither are they limited to one people. They are designed for all nations, for all ages, and for every part of the globe. It is inconceivable that any one outward form of the Church can be suited for all these different circumstances. We can readily believe that one style of building and one mode of dress might suit all parts of Palestine, but who can believe that God would prescribe the same garments for the Arabs and the Laplanders? It is therefore a priori in the highest degree improbable that God ever intended to deny his church all discretion as to the details of her organization. When we open the New Testament, the first thing that strikes the attention of the reader is its comparative silence on this subject. It is truth, repentance towards God, and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the way of reconciliation with God and restoration to the divine image, which are the prominent, overshadowing subjects there presented. Prelatists meet this difficulty by acknowledging the fact, but appealing to tradition as of equal authority with the Scriptures. Those Protestants who adopt the Just Divinum principle are obliged to substitute conjecture as to what was done in place of positive commands as to what we should do. The fact that God has not commanded Christians to adopt any one mode of organization is proof enough that he intended to leave his people free within certain prescribed limits to adapt their church polity to their circumstances. This is the conclusion to which the work of missions is forcing all denominations of Christians. This report avows that it is found impracticable to transfer bodily to heathen countries any of the forms of church organization adopted in Christian lands. With regard to religious teachers, the committee uses the following language. Quote, Considering the weakness and waywardness so generally found in men just emerging from heathenism, native pastors must for a time, and in certain respects, be practically subordinate to the missionaries by whom their churches were formed, and through whom, it may be, they are themselves partially supported. Should a practical parity in all respects be insisted on between the missionaries and the native pastors, 
In the early periods when everything is in a forming state, it is not seen how the native ministry can be trained to system and order and enabled to stand alone or even to stand at all. As with ungoverned children, self-sufficiency, impatience of restraint, jealousy and other hurtful passions will be developed. The native pastors themselves are, for a season, but babes in Christ, children in experience, knowledge and character. And hence missionaries who entertain the idea that ordination must have the effect to place the native pastors at once on a perfect equality with themselves are often backward in entrusting the responsibilities of the pastoral office to natives. Page 7 it must be obvious that the view just taken of this subject involves no danger to the future parity of the native ministry, considered in their relation to each other, for, in the nature of things, the missionary office is scarcely more successive and communicable to native pastors than the apostolic office to evangelists. End quote. Page 8. This appears to us perfectly reasonable and scriptural. No one would think of instituting a democracy among recently emancipated slaves, especially where they formed a majority of the community. It is not inconsistent with our republicanism that we keep the Indian tribes on our borders in a state of pupillage, or for a time appoint the governors and judges of our territories. It is a plain scriptural principle that superiority should be acknowledged and respected. Parents are superior to their immature children, and therefore it is the will of God that children should obey their parents. The inspired apostles were superior to all other ministers, and therefore they had authority over the whole church. The Romish theory on this subject is right enough. It is only false in fact. That theory is that the bishops are apostles, and therefore have a right to govern the church. We admit that if they were apostles, that is, inspired and infallible men, they would indeed have a right to rule, and that to resist them would be disobedience to God. But as they are no more inspired than other men, and are often in all respects the inferiors of their brethren, to claim for them a divine right to rule becomes an unscriptural and most hurtful usurpation. It is not the mere transient inequalities as to age and capacity, such as exist among men born and educated under the same circumstances, that can lay any adequate foundation for official subordination. It must be of such a nature, as in the cases referred to, as creates a real incapacity on the one side to share in the duties and responsibilities of the other side. That such a disparity does exist between European and American missionaries and their heathen converts cannot be denied. Such converts, however, must be employed as religious teachers both because the field is far too large for the missionaries to cultivate alone, and because in this way only can a native ministry be trained up. Being, however, children, in comparison to the missionaries, they must be treated as such. They are, in such a sense, inferior that they must be subordinate. The providence of God has already forced the missionaries, especially in the Sandwich Islands, to act upon this principle. There, a single missionary has under his care a church with four or five thousand communicants. This supposes a congregation of from ten to fifteen thousand persons. It is impossible that the pastor can adequately minister to such a multitude. He must have helpers. Those assistants must be taken from among the native converts. The pastor selects them, assigns them their district or sphere of labor, tells them what they must do, superintends their instruction, and advances them from one kind of duty to a higher as they increase in capacity. Whatever names may be given to these assistants, it would be hard to find anything on scriptural grounds to object to such an arrangement. 
As to the organization of mission churches, the report before us says, quote, When the time comes for organizing native converts into churches, the missionaries acting in behalf of these children in knowledge and in the power of self-organization and government cannot properly be restrained by foreign interference from conforming the organization to what they regard as the apostolical usage in similar cases, having respect, of course, to those necessary limitations already mentioned. End quote, page 31. Quote, the result may be a much simpler organization for the mission churches than is found in lands that have long sat under the light and influences of the gospel. Indeed, experience has clearly shown that it is not well to attempt the transfer of religious denominations of Christendom, full-grown and with all their peculiarities, into heathen lands, at least until the newborn churches shall have had time to acquire a good degree of discriminative and self-governing power. The experience acquired in lands long Christian partially fails us when we go into heathen countries. We need to gain a new experience and to revise many of our principles and usages, and for this purpose to go prayerfully to the New Testament. End quote, page 31. Quote, the religious liberty which we ourselves enjoy is equally the birthright of Christian converts in every part of the heathen world on coming into the spiritual kingdom of Jesus Christ, which they may claim as soon as they are prepared for it, just as American freedom is the birthright of our own children. The right of our children is not infringed by that dependence and control which they need during their infancy and childhood. It is even their right to claim that the parent shall thus act for them in the early stages of their existence. But the wise parent will always form the principles and habits of his child with reference to the time when the right of self-control must be fully exercised and yielded. In like manner, the missionary must needs give form at the outset to the constitution and habits of mission churches, and for a time he must virtually govern them. But he will do this with a constant regard to a coming period when those churches must and will act independently. End quote, page 32. Experience, then, has led the authors of this report to recognize the following principles. 1. That a call from a church is not necessary to a call to the ministry, or that ministers may properly be ordained sine titulo, or that the office of an evangelist is not obsolete. 2. That such evangelists have all the rights and prerogatives belonging to the ministerial office. They are true office-bearers in the Church of God. 3 that they may exercise a wide discretion as to the mode in which they organize churches gathered from among the heathen. 4. That mission churches have all the rights which belong to other Christian churches, though for a time they may properly be retained in a state of pupillage. These principles must commend themselves to every candid reader. Regeneration does not convert an African into a European, or a Hindu into an American. The heathen among whom our missionaries labor are far behind the Jews, Greeks, and Romans to whom the apostles preached. As the church is to be established among all sorts of men, Hottentots, Hindus, Sandwich Islanders, Indians, Greeks, and Barbarians, wise and unwise, it must have liberty to adapt itself to these diverse circumstances. To transfer congregationalism to a heathen country would be destructive and has been found impossible. This fact should teach our Eastern brethren that their system is not jure divino for all Christians, and should moderate the tone of assumption which in some parts of the country has begun to prevail on this subject. We do not pretend that Scotch Presbyterianism can be transferred bodily to our infant missionary churches, 
but we are disposed to make this claim in behalf of the genuine principles of continental and American Presbyterianism. They have an elasticity which admits of their being suited to every change of circumstances. It is no violation of those principles to have preaching and teaching elders subordinate to the pastor, as in the French churches, nor, where suitable elders are scarce, to have several churches under one session or consistory, as in various parts of Europe. We believe that God has mercifully left his people at liberty, within certain general principles laid down in his word, to modify their church polity, as his providence may render expedient, and yet under all these forms to remain faithful to the radical principles of Presbyterianism. It is not our purpose, however, to glorify Presbyterianism, on the contrary, we wish to express our sympathy with the Catholic spirit of the report, and to show how much against the providence, as well as the word of God, is the exclusive high church principles, which would transfer to the Christian church all the trammels, which, for wise reasons, were imposed on the church before the advent. The second subject considered by the committee is the responsibility of missionaries. What security have the churches at home for the fidelity of the men sent to plant the gospel among the heathen? The answer given to this question is, 1. The care taken in the selection of the men, 2. The definite and well-understood engagement into which the missionary enters, 3. His claim to support, like that of a pastor, depends on his fulfilling his engagements, 4. The board have a right to enforce this fidelity not by ecclesiastical censures but by dissolving the connection of the missionary with itself and with the mission. 5. The mutual watch and care of the missionaries over each other, and the direct influence of truth on their minds and hearts. 6. The influence of public sentiment at home. The missionaries know that, in a peculiar manner, the eyes of the church are fixed upon them, and that any failure on their part must be attended with special disgrace. To all this is to be added, if not included under number 5, the responsibility of the missionary to the ecclesiastical body at home to which he may belong. These, to say the least, are as secure pledges for the faithful discharge of their duties as can be given by ministers in this country. Experience shows this to be the case. They have their infirmities and their difficulties, but it is matter of devout thankfulness to God that American missionaries have been an honour and blessing to their country, and sustain a character in all respects equal to any similar body of men in the foreign field. The rights and responsibilities of the board in relation to missionaries and mission churches is the third topic discussed. This is much the most difficult and delicate division of the whole subject. The principles advocated in this report are the following. 1. The board has no ecclesiastical control, properly speaking, either over the missionaries or their churches. It can neither depose nor excommunicate nor in any way affect the ecclesiastical standing of those under his care. Pages 13 and 22. 2. It has the right to enforce fidelity on the part of the missionaries to their engagements. Those engagements include, among other particulars, a. Exemplary Christian conduct, b. Correct religious teaching, c. Conformity to established ecclesiastical usages, d. Proper diligence in the discharge of their duties. Pages 12, 13, 21, and 38. 3. The rule by which the board purpose to judge of the religious teaching of their missionaries is, quote, the evangelical doctrines generally received by the churches and set forth in their well-known confessions of faith, end quote page 13. Quote, Many things, it is said, which at first, 
it might seem desirable for the board to do, are found on a nearer view to lie entirely beyond its jurisdiction, so that to attempt them would be useless, nay, a ruinous usurpation. Nor is the board at liberty to withdraw its confidence from missionaries because of such differences of opinion among them as are generally found and freely tolerated in presbyteries, councils, associations, and other bodies here at home. End quote, page 17. The standard of judgment as to matters of polity is the ecclesiastical usages which, quote, prevail among the churches operating through the board. While the board may not establish new principles in matters purely ecclesiastical, it may enforce the observance of such as are generally acknowledged by the churches and were understood to be acknowledged by the missionaries when sent to their fields. End quote, page 13. 4. The board is, therefore, quote, responsible directly in the manner which has been described for the teaching of the missionaries. End quote, page 38. 5. The board is not responsible directly for the character of the mission churches. If there be evils, even scandalous wickedness, in those churches, they can be reached only through the missionaries. Page 39. When evils exist, however, in the mission churches, the committee may and must inquire whether the missionaries are doing their duty. This we believe to be a correct statement of the views of the committee in relation to their authority and responsibility in reference to the missionaries and the mission churches. From this, it appears that the committee claim for the board the right not only to enforce the fidelity and diligence of those under its care as missionaries, but their correct teaching and discipline as ministers. It is assumed that the board has the right, in all cases, to judge of that correctness. They can inflict no ecclesiastical censure, but they can dissolve the connection between the missionary and the mission for error in doctrine or discipline. We, of course, do not controvert all the positions above quoted from the report nor do we deny that the board, under peculiar circumstances, may rightfully exercise all the powers here claimed in its behalf. The above view of the subject, however, involves, in our judgment, an important misapprehension of the relation of the board both to the churches at home and to the missionaries and churches abroad. The board is simply the agent and not the plenipotentiary of the church. It does not stand in the place of the church, nor is it invested with all the oversight and control over the missionaries which the church may properly exercise. It stands related to those whom it sends out as missionaries and not as ministers. Every such messenger to the heathen sustains a twofold relation, the one as a missionary to the board, the other as a minister to his ecclesiastical superiors or associates. To the former he is responsible for his conduct as a missionary. He must go where he is sent, stay where he is required to remain, perform that part of the missionary work which may be assigned to him, etc., etc. To the latter, he is responsible for his doctrines and ministerial conduct. When a missionary stands isolated or has no ecclesiastical supervisors, or none who can act as such, then, as a matter of necessity, the consideration of his doctrine and acts of discipline falls under the cognizance of the board, not, however, as a part of their appropriate function, but on the same principle that, in cases of emergency, every citizen, and not merely the police, is bound to enforce the law of the land. The case of a missionary is analogous to that of an officer of the army. Every such officer bears a twofold relation, the one to his military superiors, the other to the civil authorities. As an officer, he is to be judged by the articles of war, as a citizen by the laws of the land. 
for the Secretary at War, or Commanding General, to take into his hands the administration of the civil law is equivalent to the proclamation of martial law. In like manner, for the Board of Missions to undertake to judge of matters of doctrine and discipline would be like putting the missionary world in a state of siege. If the Board be the agent of the churches for the conduct of missions, it is clear, one, that it has the right to select and send forth missionaries to determine their location, to superintend and direct their labours, to enforce fidelity and diligence, and in general to do whatever is requisite for the successful prosecution of their work, which is not otherwise provided for. Two, that the Board has the power to discard any missionary at pleasure, i.e. for any reason that to them may seem sufficient. It may be incompetency, indolence, ill-temper, or any other cause. 3. The only question is, what are the reasons which justify an exercise of that power? It is evident that those reasons may be perfectly adequate, or they may be insufficient. Or, they may be such as involve a breach of trust on the part of the board towards the churches. If, for example, they should discard a missionary because he was a Calvinist or pedo-baptist, that would clearly be a breach of faith with those churches for whom they act and from whom they derive their funds. 4. The points on which we think it important to insist are these. First, that no doctrine or mode of teaching can be an adequate ground for discarding any missionary, which doctrine or mode of teaching is sanctified by the churches operating through the board, and that no mode of church organization or condition of church membership can be a justifiable reason for withholding aid and fellowship from a mission church, which mode of organization and condition of church membership is approved by those churches. And secondly, that the question whether a given doctrine is consistent with the faith of those churches, or a given mode of organization or condition of church membership is compatible with their discipline, is one for those denominations and not for the board to decide. That is, the board cannot go behind the decisions of those churches and pronounce that to be inconsistent with their doctrines, which they say is consistent, or that to be incompatible with their discipline, which they say is conformable to it. It is hardly to be presumed that the Prudential Committee would dissent from either of these propositions as thus stated. And yet they are very different from the principles of their report, and lead to widely different practical results. The principal points of difference are these two. First, the report assumes that the board is directly responsible for the teaching of the missionaries, and of course have the right to superintend and direct it. Hence, the committee call upon the missionaries and interrogate them, do you think so and so? Do you teach thus and thus? According to our view, this responsibility does not rest upon the committee, unless as a derelict, but upon the ecclesiastical body, presbytery, classes or association to which the missionary belongs. Second, the report, as a necessary consequence of the assumed responsibility on the part of the board for the teaching of the missionaries, claims for it the right of judgment of that teaching, of deciding whether it is consistent with the generally received doctrines of the churches, and of matters of church polity and discipline, whether they are consistent or otherwise with established ecclesiastical usage. We, on the other hand, must deny to the board any such right, except, as before said, in the absence of the legitimate judges of such matters. The right of judging must rest where the responsibility is. That our view of this important subject is the correct one, we think, will appear from the following considerations. 1. The board is not an ecclesiastical body. It disclaims all ecclesiastical authority. 
but to sit in judgment on the orthodoxy of ministers, to determine whether their doctrines are consistent with, quote, the well-known confession of faith, end quote, or their principles of polity and discipline, with established ecclesiastical usage, is one of the very highest and most difficult duties of an ecclesiastical tribunal. It is, from the nature of the case, ecclesiastical control in the truest and highest sense of the term. It is of no account to say that the board cannot affect the ecclesiastical standing or privileges of those whom it judges. The nature of the cause depends on the matter tried, and not on the character of the penalty. Deposition and excommunication are rare ecclesiastical inflictions. Admonition and other milder censures are much more frequent. That the effect of an unfavourable decision by the board is disgrace, the loss of standing and the loss of support, instead of temporary suspension from church privileges, does not alter the case. If the judgment be rendered for error in doctrine, it is an ecclesiastical judgment, whatever may be the nature of the penalty. In England, the courts, having jurisdiction over clergymen for clerical offences, whether the court of archers or the privy council, are courts of ecclesiastical control, even though the penalty they impose be fine or loss of stipend. The report says, quote, The question assumes a plain business form, whether there is an actual departure from the basis on which the missionary appointment was made, and what effect it has exerted on the peace and usefulness of the mission, and on the operations of the board. End quote. Page 22. This is not one whit a plainer question, nor one whit more a business matter than a trial for heresy before a presbytery. In this latter case, the simple question is, quote, whether there is an actual departure from the basis on which, end quote, the man was received into the presbytery. If the latter is an ecclesiastical question, so is the former. They are both questions relating to the orthodoxy of ministers, and the body authorized to sit in judgment on that question is vested with ecclesiastical jurisdiction. The right, therefore, to judge of such matters does not belong to the board, for by common consent they have no ecclesiastical control. 2. This authority to judge in matters of doctrine does not belong to the board. It was never committed to them by any power, human or divine. It does not inhere in them in virtue of their constitution, nor has it been delegated to them by the churches. 3. It is an authority which the board is not competent to exercise. The board itself meets but once in the year, and that only for a few days. Its authority is really in the hands of the prudential committee. Such a committee, however, is evidently not a competent tribunal to sit in judgment on the ministerial character, the orthodoxy or heterodoxy, of hundreds of missionaries in all parts of the world. They are, in many cases, laymen, and have not the competent knowledge. Lawyers would not like to see clergymen set to administer the laws of the land. And without disrespect, it may be said that if there is anything from which ministers and the church need pray to be delivered, it is from being subject to civil judges in ecclesiastical matters. Judge Rogers' decision has given a wholesome lesson on that subject to old-school Presbyterians, and the decision of Judge Gibson, we hope, has been equally beneficial to our new-school brethren. Besides the incompetency arising from want of training, any such body as the Prudential Committee is too remote from the person to be tried. They cannot adequately examine into any such case unless it happens to be one of the most open and notorious character. They cannot, however, calculate upon always having cases of that kind. They may be called upon to determine whether a given doctrine is not Arminian or Pelagian and a real denial of the well-known creed of the churches. 
Besides all this, they have no promise of divine guidance in this matter. 4. The power in question is both onerous and dangerous. One would think the Prudential Committee had work enough on their hands in superintending so many missions in every part of the world with all their complicated concerns, without assuming the additional burden of directing the teaching and judging the orthodoxy of some hundreds of missionaries. We doubt not the committee would rejoice to see themselves exempted from all responsibility on that subject. It is besides rather incongruous with our Protestant and especially with our American ideas that five or six men in Boston or New York should have the power to determine what doctrines shall and what shall not be taught in Europe, Asia, Africa and America, and to decide whether this or that opinion is consistent with the standards of evangelical churches. How much controversy have we had on that very point in all parts of the country? How earnestly has it been debated in New England itself? How decided were such men as Cornelius and Nettleton that certain doctrines, whose advocates were neither few nor inconsiderable, ought not to be tolerated in our churches at home or abroad? Is the Prudential Committee prepared to decide all these litigated points? They must of necessity either exercise an intolerable power, or they must in a great measure let things take their course. Generally they would pursue the latter method, and every now and then the former, but the churches never can long recognize a power at war with all our ecclesiastical institutions. It would be very much like the republicanism which they have in Paris under General Cavignac. 5. It is altogether unnecessary that the power to inspect the teaching of the missionaries and to judge of their doctrines should be lodged in the hands either of the board or of the prudential committee. It is far more safe and effective if lodged elsewhere. The committee do not receive a missionary in the first instance on the ground of any personal knowledge of his orthodoxy. They do not subject him to any theological examination. They take his orthodoxy for granted on the authority of the presbytery or the council that ordained him. They may refuse to receive him for ill health, ignorance, unamiableness or other reasons of like nature, but they could not refuse his services because he held any opinion which the church to which he belongs and the body which ordained him pronounced to be sound. In the first instance, then, the committee are relieved of the responsibility of judging of matters of doctrine and disclaim all right to review the decisions of competent church courts. When the missionary enters upon his field, he retains his ecclesiastical connection, whatever it was. He remains a minister of the Dutch, of the Presbyterian, or of the Congregational Church or denomination. In all ordinary cases, three, six, or more ministers belong to one station. If they are Presbyterians, they form a presbytery, if Congregationalists, an association. There is just the same oversight over the orthodoxy of a member of the Choctaw Presbytery of Indiana, as over that of a member of the Presbytery of New York. There is just as much security for the correct teaching of a congregational minister in Ceylon as for that of a similar minister in Connecticut. In all such cases the responsibility rests with the ministerial associates of the missionary. It is the doctrine of all the churches operating through the board that a minister is subject to his brethren through the Lord. That subjection is neither thrown off nor transferred when he becomes a missionary. If no man or committee is entitled to question a member of the Presbytery of New York or the Association of East Windsor about his doctrines, no man or committee can question the members of a presbytery or association in a foreign land. 
placing the responsibility for the teaching of the missionaries and the right to judge concerning it on their ministerial associates, has, it seems to us, everything in its favour. It is according to principle, it is what all churches do in this country, and what they all say ought to be done. It is one of the most valuable rights of the ministry. It is to them what trial by jury is in the state. It is far more safe and effective as a method of control. It relieves the committee of a burdensome, invidious and most dangerous prerogative. And finally, it is right and the other wrong. It has already been admitted that where a missionary is perfectly isolated, where he has no ministerial associates, then, from the necessity of the case, his responsibility is to the committee. But these are rare cases and ought not to be permitted to occur. 6. Operating on the principle here advocated would free the committee from a great deal of embarrassment. The Congregational, Reformed Dutch, and a large part of the Presbyterian churches make the American board their agent for conducting foreign missions. These denominations have severally their standards of doctrine, and each its own method of determining what is and what is not consistent with its faith and discipline. Let them decide such matters. So long as a minister is rectus in ecclesia, with the Dutch or the Presbyterians, the committee are free from all responsibility as to his doctrine. So long as those churches allow of a certain mode of church organization or condition of church membership, the committee have nothing to say in the matter. If the venerable Mr. Kingsbury stands well in his own presbytery, the five or six gentlemen in Boston composing the Prudential Committee may well rest satisfied with his doctrines. If Father Spaulding in Salon has the confidence of all his ministerial associates, the churches in this country will not be suspicious of his orthodoxy. If the Reformed Dutch or Presbyterians will allow those who drink wine or hold slaves to come to the Lord's table, the blame, if there be any, rests with them. How can the committee help it? Will they withhold the money contributed by those denominations from churches who do exactly what they are allowed to do by their ecclesiastical superiors? The committee themselves say they cannot withdraw their confidence from any missionary for any opinion tolerated by the churches at home. Page 17. Then, why not let the churches decide whether a doctrine or usage is tolerated in fact, and ought to be so? This is all we contend for, viz., that it rests with the churches, i.e., with the regular ecclesiastical authorities, to judge whether the doctrines and discipline of the missionaries and their churches are to be tolerated or not. We can hardly think of a case where this principle would not apply. In all the large missions of the board, there are ministers and church members enough to constitute as trustworthy a tribunal as can be formed at home. If those ministers form a presbytery or classes, there is an appeal from their decision to the synod or general assembly. If they form an association or council, that is the highest tribunal known to the congregational churches. If a mission, presbytery, or association becomes decidedly heretical, they are to be treated precisely as such bodies would be treated at home. But the question of heresy is one for the churches and not for the committee to decide. The new school assembly allow slaveholders to come to the Lord's table. Shall the committee, agents of the new school Presbyterians, refuse to sustain such churches, or shall they throw the responsibility on the denominations to which the churches belong? We think the latter is the only course consistent with right principles, or compatible with the harmonious action of the numerous patrons of the board. Much, therefore, as we admire this report in many of its features, and greatly as we respect the source whence it proceeds, 
we cannot but believe that the committee have misconceived the relation in which the board stands as well to the churches at home as to the missionaries abroad. The board is not the plenipotentiary of the churches, to secure the orthodoxy of missionaries or the purity of mission churches. It is an agent for employing such missionaries and planting such churches abroad as the churches at home approve. The missionaries are responsible to the board for their fidelity and diligence as missionaries, but for their doctrine and discipline as ministers, they are responsible to the denominational churches to which they belong, which churches are represented by the ministerial associates with whom the missionaries are connected. End of section 21.